Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Innovation Capital Podcast presented by PatSnap. In today's episode of the podcast, Ray sits down with the founder and managing director of Strategic Allies, John Allies. John is passionate about delivering business growth for his clients. He has been instrumental in building and consolidating their extensive network of worldwide contacts and global client companies. He works with clients to understand their confidential technological and business requirements and supports them to secure the most appropriate opportunities. He has almost 30 years in international experience of delivering business growth strategies through licensing and strategic alliances in various sectors, including aerospace, communications, automotive, petrochemicals, and construction, both from within manufacturing companies and outside of them. And today, John sits down with Ray. They have an absolutely fascinating conversation, which I know you are all going to enjoy. Be sure, as always, you have a pen, piece of paper, sit back, and dive deep in today's interview with John Allies. Enjoy. So welcome, John, to Innovation Capital. Really excited to have this conversation on this uh, slightly mild Friday afternoon here in the UK. And John, would love to open with just your backstory, how you ended up in the wonderful world of innovation, open innovation, because it seems like you've been building your current organization, Strategic Allies, since 2006, so nearly over 15 years. So it'll be love to just set the stage and hear about your backstory and we can go from there. Surely. Wow, that's taken me back some time. Um, so I guess I did a materials and material science metallurgy degree, um, did an MBA after that um, and found myself in sort of mainly, mainly in sales roles. And um, I then became probably a licensing um, ooh, experts, too strong a word. I've I got involved in licensing. Basically, I worked for some smaller companies who had some really smart technology. And um, when they were, when we looked at them and how did you, how did you get that technology into market? Um, and at the time, these companies were really cash strapped. The only way we could do it was to license it. So I started out uh, with a couple of small companies licensing their technology mainly into the States and then into Asia and then latterly, believe it or not, as a third route into Europe. Um, and involved, so doing that for some time, I, I really got to understand the sales stroke, licensing stroke technology role. Um, and then I joined a company in, when would it be, 98, that um, was called PAX Technology Transfer. And basically they are, they were what we've become now. Um, so that was 98. And I guess we, I can, I can trace our background, you know, back to those uh, late, that last decade of the, of the 20th century, really. Um, so I started working with PAX and they were acquired by an American company. I stayed a couple of years and then left and started 
Strategic Allies Limited, we, we call ourselves SAL, it's much easier to say, um, in, two, in 2005, 2006, as you said. It's interesting, when you mentioned PAX, God, you, you took me down memory lane there. Yeah. But, um, my last organization, which was a, a wonderful journey, a great company called Data Monitor, we built quite a robust uh, team which would provide intelligence to the tech transfer community. So academic, government. Um, God, do you remember groups like Nesta? Does that name ring a bell? I, when they were I certainly do. Yeah, yeah, I certainly do. They were called the Quangos, weren't they, back in 2008, some of these organizations, but some of them are really uh, meaningful and done some great work. And I've seen things evolve a lot over the years, hopefully in the right direction. But it's interesting, when an entrepreneur starts their business, what did you see in the market when you were working for someone else within the licensing role? What, what did you spot in terms of a gap where you felt, you know, I'm going to start my own company because... I see unmet needs or I see opportunity. What, what were some of the inefficiencies that you noticed which inspired you to start sell? So I don't think that, you know, that sounds like the, the, the classic case, doesn't it? But life's seldom like that. Um, what happened with, with us is that I was working for PAX. We were acquired by a large American company. The American company had a very different model, very different model to what we were operating in PAX at the time. Um, and that was around about 2001, the dot-com crash. Can you remember? I think we were the, the last, one of the last deals that went through before the markets absolutely tumbled. Um, so consequently, as soon as the deal went through, the large American companies sort of, you know, ignored us completely and, and, and got st stuck into creating or, or, or shoring up their business. So we were allowed to, to continue. But then... A year or two later, the American company came in. They wanted us to um, adopt their very, very good, but very US model into Europe. And it just was never going to work. It was a very, very different uh, model. I'm, I won't go into detail, but it was based on um, much more junior stock markets, so the pink sheets and, and you know those sort of um, companies, which didn't exist in the UK and Europe at the time. Um, so we sort of continued along a route and then I just left, basically. I, I sort of had, had enough, um, thought I'd take some time off. And then an ex-colleague of mine said, John, why don't, why don't we start again? And it was, it was literally that spa that I thought, well, I was, I was ready to do other things, to be honest. And I thought, well, hey, why not? If, if the American company is now going to take that old, older company down a different route, there are lots of existing clients and a developing market that we could we could build into. So I guess that was the origins of it. So you know, it's not I see us. I saw us um, a spot and went for it. It was it was a set of circumstances that arrived with one conversation. You know, that's often the case where someone says something and you think, yeah, there's there's something in that. You you bat it around a couple of times until you mould it into something that you think you can run with. And then you launch. Mm. And it's interesting, before this conversation today, I, I was doing some research prior to our call and, and digging up some old folders on an old laptop because the whole conversation around open innovation, technology transfer, tech scouting, I, I can't tell you how many reports I've downloaded <laughs> and, and copied and pasted into a deck, maybe present it at a company all hands and get everyone talking and discussing. And 
we're fortunate enough to serve that community across so many different industries. And for me, there's been periods where I feel like it's stuck in the mud. Yeah. We're not really progressing, really, in reality, if you look at the numbers. However, I'm always optim optimistic by nature, and I, I'd love your sense of the current lay of the land, in particular, say, 2016 onwards, where everyone's generally, so that there's great investors like Kathy Wood, who runs an organization called ARC Invest, and if that name rings a bell, mm -hmm. uh, yep. the leading hedge funds who purely focus on disruptive innovation. And there's been some great uh, pieces recently, I think, one piece by Azim Azar, who's published a book called The Exponential Age. If you've not checked that out yet, I'd highly recommend it. And then a, a couple of other pieces with uh, Peter Diamandis. Uh, he's, he's done a piece called The Future is Faster Than You Think. And if I look at what Kathy's done, what Azim covered in his book, which she came out two weeks ago, it's a great read. And what Peter Diamandis has done with some of his pieces, they all connect to 2015 being maybe this kickstart of the exponential age where we've got four or five technologies all hitting the peak of their stride. Well, well, all not hitting the peak of their stride, but hitting their stride at the same time. So blockchain, AI, what we're doing in synthetic biology, underneath that machine learning, robotics. So it looks like we are entering potentially a special paradigm and we are seeing it in the public and private markets in terms of the valuations and the confidence behind tech at the moment. So my question is, where are we now when it comes to industry really executing well and consistently on tech scouting, open innovation and, and building out a really solid framework around it? Where, where, where do you think we've progressed in the last five or six years? So when you when you were talking there right? i was sort of going back and i was mulling over a couple of things and i think i think it's changed massively just indulge me a little bit and rather than go back five years let me go back 20 years so 20 years ago we were doing this and we were working for medium-sized companies mainly based in the uk because we were you know based there um tended to be owner managed companies and basically we were saying to them where's your next product coming from where's your next your next product differentiation coming from um, and these owner managers they you know they were very focused they made quick decisions um, they were a little bit seat of the pants to be honest um, and they they were more focused on the next quarter than the next year so we were looking for product distribution deals things that we could bring in and make that happen so that and that, that was okay you know it was it was sort of self-limiting in the number of of quality clients you could have but the ones that you did have tended to make decisions quite quickly and and moved on with the process if you then go to um you know, the dawn of open innovation. And I don't really know when that started because there's still some laggards who don't really embrace it, I think. Um, but all of a sudden, the larger companies started to hear from Chesbro and the likes about open innovation. And it took a long time for those companies to to understand what, what the concept was. I think Chesbro was very clever. What he explained in his funnel model, and we've seen millions, millions of them since, was not rocket science it's what most of the better companies were doing anyway but it was a model that you could then um 
you could then talk about and 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 get the bigger companies to adopt and they did do that but very very slowly and i think we probably from 15 certainly the sort of 13 14s onwards i think you've now seen not so much a convergence of various technologies like ai blockchain etc because you know, if you go about 10 years, there would have been similar technologies that were that were changing the world. And then 20 years back, there were similar technologies that were changing the world. I, I think we're on an accelerating um, graph, but the, at any one snapshot in time, you've got really fundamental change going on. So when you talk about tech scouting, and, and I always have to explain what we do, because we talk about tech scouting, often it's partner scouting. Large companies have you know they're very they're still very focused even even though the you know they have various departments they're quite focused on quarterly results etc they don't often have the time to explore where you know where they can find partners and that and if i'm honest probably most of them aren't very good at doing that so we can when we talk about technology we're often looking for manufacturing partners people who can take um a technology into another territory, people who can tweak a technology slightly and make it better. It's great if we think about a technology that's going to change the world, but I'm afraid in any industry, most of the changes are incremental rather than rather than step change. And, and I think actually, because most of these large organizations are somewhat conservative, step change scares the living daylights out of them. Um, incremental is the way they want to go. Now, maybe sometimes that increment is bigger than others, but that tends to be the way that the way that those large corporations move. I mean, you see so many reports from the likes of BCG. Uh, I really enjoy some of the stuff that Innovation Leader publish, and they're all yep. leaning towards a trend towards more bets around transformational innovation. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously that's survey data, right? But are you saying the reality really is with large public companies who have a quarterly target, let's face it, it still is majority incremental and maybe some adjacent work? Is that what the market? So we work across all sectors, you know, from, from pharmaceutical to FMCG to aerospace to food and bev, every single sector we, we work in. And therefore, by definition, we're not experts in any of those sectors. We like to think that we're experts in, in finding and doing deals with technology or manufacturing partners. Um, our experience is definitely that, that those large companies don't have the appetite for massive step change. Maybe you'd get some people within those organizations who are visionary and who can see that, you know, see what's coming down the line and really want to embrace it. But they then have the political problem of trying to sell that internally. And, and that's that's a really big, big job. You know, there's this big line, isn't there, that, um, that, that you, the company needs mavericks. Well, they sort of do, but they probably just need to listen to the people who are maybe not quite as maverick as, as the others. Because, you know, it is really difficult. So, you know, innovation, is that a different pack size? Is that is that six bottles in a in a in, in a, a carton rather than four? 
or is it uh let me think of something is it um is it digital fluids you know is it sending fluid down a digital line and and re-emerging it in a in a special cup at, at five thousand miles away i mean that sounds like science fiction but it's been proven but will it be adopted the companies are, i think so that's a sort of consumer-aimed product. The companies probably don't think that the consumer is ready for that. The infrastructure isn't ready for that. All the legal things around that usually scare them to death. Mm, interesting. So, so, so focusing on the process of executing and building out a good scouting and open innovation framework, now going into 2022, what does good look like in terms of the process and what should organizations have in place to do this well? Because, again, you see so much published over the last 10 years by the usual suspects talking about building out an innovation radar, having alignment internally, having a good communication protocol, democratizing and getting more people involved. But in your professional opinion, what are some of the kind of top two or three pillars of best practice, which is required to, to do this well. So I'm going, to, I'm going to be biased because I think that we do it better than any any large corporate. Um, and, and that's because that's all, I usually say, it's, this is sort of my pitch when I'm standing in front of an innovation director. The fact is that they have a million and one things to do. We have one thing to do. We, we take your challenge, Mr. or Mrs. Innovation Director, and we will go and find you potential op opportunities to solve that challenge. Now, um, I, I think the, the hardest thing, or one of the hardest things for an innovation team to do is to actually find those articulations of the challenges within the business. You know, if, if I go into a business and I can say, I can solve every challenge that you have, I'm, I'm sort of joking a little bit here, but you know, if I was to go into a company and say that, I would still have to keep battering and badgering to get the challenges, because a lot of the companies do not—they they don't articulate, they, they, they don't have the vision to look further than the next small step. You know, what is the next challenge? Uh, I, that sounds quite negative, and I'm—I'm I'm not being negative because there's some great success stories around. Um, but, but I think that the starting point for any, any internal team is to articulate the challenges and get buy-in from the departments, whether it be R&D or marketing or whatever, that though, you know, that's the list of four challenges and that's priority number one, that's priority number two. Now, how do we go about finding those solutions? And once you've done that, um, then we're a tech scouting company. We we have a particular way of doing things. There are other tech scouting companies who have different ways of doing things. And the internal team will have different ways of doing things. And if you had limitless budget, which I know is never the case, but if it was, you would engage all of those options because you really don't know where the solution is going to come from. You know, one assumes that if we're being asked to find a solution to either a, a really tough and challenging technical problem so you know the needle in the haystack or we're looking for a technology or a partner who can differentiate a, a client's offering to the market if we're looking for either of those one assumes that the internal team has already 
looked internally and in their supplier network and maybe you know a little bit further out so when we get that challenge it's a tough one and, and that's what we want we want those tough challenges we will work we'll work our darndest to, to, to actually find the solution but if you had limitless budget you would be looking everywhere and in terms of difficulty level where do you see some of the the tough spots so you, sometimes it can be a more of a a challenge around transforming the business model so that could normally be maybe done by uh, uh, enhanced distribution an external kind of more commercial partner or it could be a real tough material science problem where yeah. x material needs to be made 40 percent lighter to make the outcome say for example economically viable and scalable what, what are some of them if you put it on a scale for from kind of less challenging to this is damn difficult like <laughs> what does it look like in your world i was just curious so i'm not judging the question but you never know until you start to look you know you really don't know so both of those those examples you gave ray we are working on at the moment you know we're working on um, a company who are trying to build a new product portfolio completely separate to what they're doing so they've got no history in the market and we're looking for development partners to help them formulate and then manufacturing partners to help them distribute internationally globally it's quite that's you know that's that's a business model issue and at the same time we're looking um in a graphene for a graphene manufacturing process that has an ability to um, produce 3d heater um, formations so you know a tough you know when you mention graphene everyone gets excited and then realizes that it's more of a challenge than they initially thought of so very very tough but specific technical challenge you know to, to both of those clients I've, no, I've i wouldn't be able to say that's hard or that's easy because you don't know until you go out there it's a it's a journey of discovery so so i think we have a, a slightly different take on tech partner scouting the fact that we are you know we have the databases and and, and we do all the scraping and we do, we do all of the networking but our main focus is talking to people it's very people centric so we've got um access to about 1500 people around the world who have networks of their own and we start to delve into those people and have conversations and until you have those conversations which when you're talking to a human are much richer than when you're looking at a database then things emerge people you should speak to this you need to talk to this person in, in asia or you need to talk to these people in in, in finland by by doing by having that process and being involved it's it's amazing you can hit something within the first week or a project that you thought might be one on slightly more on the simpler side could take three months you know and and, and that, to be honest even though that's inconsistent and quite difficult for the client to deal with for the tech scouts that's the challenge that's the really interesting bit of the business you know it's that discovery with both a technical hat and a commercial hat because a technology that's not that's not commercialable you know is 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 little more than useless so you have to have both the technical the commercial the cultural fit into the client once you you know to, to balance all those those pieces of the jigsaw and they'll be able to present something that that you think is worthwhile and therefore it's coming from you you know it's a personal um 
I wouldn't say recommendation at the early stage, but it's 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 the, the tech scout saying, I found this, I've done some work commercially and technically and culturally, it seems to be in the right area. Now, have a look at it. What else do you need to know? That's 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 I know what motivates my team without a doubt. And John, could you unpack culturally what what specific does that that because that sounds like an interesting vector. So when you mention the word it's got to be culturally aligned, what, what do you specifically mean? <sighs> Covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? Um so <clears throat> so so if we found a really smart technology that addressed a, I'm making this up, but we've, we addressed an FMCG client's um, challenge, then culturally you, 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 we tend to be dealing at the smaller, you know, innovation tends, tends to be at the smaller end of the company size. So academic and technical institute yes but startup and sme is probably the big area because that's globally that that sme um type of company is more innovative and and often lacks access to market which is usually what our clients can provide so if we find an sme that has a great technology the ideal fit would be with a large company but they talk a different language, you know, that one doesn't want to disclose its secrets to the other. One is scared of the other. And I'm, I'm using that word, you know, in, in the right term. They're quite scared. The small company will be scared. They'll be they'll be um, taken to the cleaners by the big company, rightly or wrongly. So so there's a cultural misfit there. They even speak the different language. You know that they they maybe don't have the, the smaller companies don't have the corporate speak that that the large corporations do. So there's there's a great opportunity for misunderstanding, which again you know leverages that cultural problem. Um, there's the financial aspects. There's reporting aspects. So you know, I, I guess culture is a is a catch-all for all the things that aren't commercial or technical. Okay, and, and looking at that, say that material science uh, challenge, for example, mm-hmm. at a fifty thousand foot overview, what does your process look like at Sal, end to end, typically? Um, so, so if we have a good client, the good client knows what they want. That's not always the case. Um, a an all another client might have an idea of what they want, in which case we'd have to work with them to through a workshop or just a, you know a couple of conversations refine it a little bit, not too focused. You don't want to be too focused. You want, I think you need to be um, focused on, on the benefits you're looking for, but open to alternatives, you know, around that. Once you've got a spec, then we will write a one page search spec. That's quite a challenge. You don't get an awful lot of information on a, onto one page. You have to make it broad enough to engage with a very large community and, and diverse and disparate community but within that one page you have to have some detail because if it's too woolly then people will read it and not really understand what, what what you're looking for so it has to be broad but there has to be some good detail in there that one page search spec is full of non-confidential words so we can share it far and wide but we never never disclose to the clients is that's always confidential often we're dealing with stakeholder sensitive issues and there's, there are other reasons like manage expectations, et cetera, that we wouldn't want to put the client's name on it. Once we've got that search spec, that goes out to our 1,500 people around the world. 
The downside of having people is that they don't respond like keywords immediately. They take a little time to read and think, okay, that's interesting. Now, who do I know? And so they go into their networks. So that might take two or three weeks before we start to see something back, which a lot of people sort of take a gas back because that seems quite a long time. We don't, we don't sit there twiddling our thumbs in that time. What we do is we start looking into our knowledge database because we are talking to startups and SMEs and institutes and academics around the world all the time and building up a knowledge database of things that are happening in, in every sector and, and companies with technologies or partner qualities that are really, really valuable. So we'll go into that and we'll start talking to what we call low-hanging fruit. Who do we go and talk to? Maybe some of the people that we've sent that search back to, we know they, they work a lot in that area. So we pick up the phone and we talk to these people. So that's hoping to find some low-hanging fruit, but it's also benchmarking a little bit. It's starting to benchmark what's out there so that when, after two or three weeks, we start to receive projects that we call them coming in from our network. So somebody will say... Urki in Finland told me you were looking for something. I've got this company based in um, Helsinki, and this is what we're doing. We will that will come in as a project. We will look. We will use it and filter it against our benchmark that, that we built up over the last two or three weeks. Um, we'll filter it against the search spec, and if it makes those cuts, we'll take a direct conversation with them and we'll ask them some more detail. If it makes that cut, that cut, we'll send it to the client. And sending a two-pager, you know, an, an opening document to the client that says, this is something that you really need to be, be aware of. It seems to hit three of the four points that you're looking for. Now, what else do you need to know? And because everything we do is confidential, we act as the intermediary. So the client asks tells us the questions they have, we go to the project and we ask those questions. And we, we act in the middle, obviously hoping to bring the two parties together under the right confidentiality clauses eventually. Um, but in the, but, but in, in the interim period, we act as the sort of veil of confidentiality that, that our clients can hide behind. So we, for every search that we, that we do, if, for every 10 projects that come in, so search back is written, goes out to our network, two or three weeks later, we start to get projects. For every 10 that come in, and we may have hundreds, but for every 10, empirically, we know that seven of them, we can get rid of them at the first filter level. So they, they don't quite meet the search spec. Um, the, the, the confidential information our clients told us that we've not put on the search spec, use that as a filter and we can discount seven. The three that make that step, uh, we will take a direct contact with. So wherever they are in the world, we'll take a direct contact by email or by phone. Um, so we have the language skills to be able to do that. And we'll ask them those other questions, the, 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 the softer questions. Okay, the technology works, but who else are you working with? Who's the team? What's the technology readiness level? What's the commercial situation? Is, is there investment needed? All those other aspects that make a, a potential deal go through. And as a result of that, that, those three probably come down to one. So that one is the one that we send to our clients. And we look for some feedback. And whilst the client's thinking about it, we will be sending another one that's coming through the process. You know, it, it's a process that's, that delivers those one out of 10 on a regular basis so that we try and build up 
a portfolio of opportunities that the client can look at and can judge against other ones that have come in externally or even other internally generated solutions or projects. So, and, and we can help them to manage those all together as well. So it's very, it's very interactive, but I think one of the things that we try and do, if you're talking to lots of people, it's very time consuming. The large corporates are not, um, they're not great at talking to SMEs and in many time, in many occasions, they they don't want to disclose what they're looking for. You know, they, they it may be sensitive, so they don't want to go out to the world looking for something. Um, so, so what we're trying to do is to is to is to manage that process, and and keep the client at arm's length initially, so that we're doing the legwork, and then eventually, when we're starting to bring the good opportunities. To, opportunities to them that's when they have to get involved they they're the only people who can make the decision so they have to get involved at that point and then we work with them across you know five six seven eight nine opportunities to filter down to the best ones and hopefully do a do a deal at the end of the end of the day that's a long way that's a long fifteen thousand meter um helicopter shot isn't no, it John, that's brilliant the more detail sometimes the better and you mentioned an area where you cover benchmarking. Could you unpack that slightly more? What do you mean by bench when you guys do your own internal benchmarking and kind of link that with some of the external expert network? Yeah, so so we so we because we've been doing this for fifteen plus years as Sal and and nearly thirty years between myself and my co-director, um, we've built up within the team quite a good knowledge across various sectors. As I say, we're not experts in all sectors; can't possibly be. But we've built up, you know, a good background knowledge. We also have a, a series of um, of associates who are specialists in those sectors. So when we get a search, let's say in 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 beverage sector, we will first of all bring our associate in. They will help us to make sure that our knowledge is is up to speed. But then going out and talking to the people that we've spoken to previously on on other beverage searches, we can pick up on what they had then, where it's moved to, is it, is it, has it developed, has it been taken on, did it fall to the wayside, what are they working on at the moment? So by doing that, you, you quite quickly get a, a good picture of a sector and the technology or partner level within that sector, which, which forms the basis of when new projects come in, does, does it meet does it, or does it exceed or does it fall below that benchmark level? That's sort of where, where we do that. Okay, makes sense. So this is really useful. So it's, it's a blend of obviously your own internal team and you run that in parallel with a, a vast expert network of circa 1,500 contacts who then work in parallel to reach out to their, to their networks. And that specific network, is it in essence similar to, so there's one organization which we bump into from time to time called Pre-Scouter? independent experts is it a similar type of methodology in essence similar to no, i don't to think it? so no i don't think so ray i think i think pre-scouter is um i think their network is, is full of experts ours are not necessarily experts so we have associates that help us with the benchmarking they are separate to the the 1500 um we call them our smart connected people and i think that's a good way of of explaining who they are they're smart because they have to be. 
uh, and they're connected. That's the most important thing. So, so they will be, um, they'll be a, they'll be the head of a, of a, of an SME company or a group. They'll be the head of a, an industry group. They'll be VCs. They'll be uh, technology consultants or transfer tech transfer people. So there'll be people who operate in the area. But really important to us is that we that each of them oversees more than two sectors. So we don't in that fifteen hundred people, we don't want an expert in healthcare. We don't want an expert in in food and bev. We've got those associates who, who we, we love and trust. We want those people to be able to see a cross sector because that's often where the opportunities lie. You know, you might see something in in veterinary science that you could bring into healthcare. You might see it the other way around. There are various transitional technologies that become that we can find that way. So it's really important that that those people are not experts but are smart and open. You know, I guess the open innovation phrase comes comes to mind there. They have to be open and engaged with as many people as possible. We we try to we try to get in our minds that each of our 1,500 people will have 1,500 people in their networks, which means that we are covering, you know, a very pervasive um, industry uh, spectrum. That's interesting. So in essence, your external network of, in essence, 3,000, really, because it's a network of a network, Mm -hmm. by mindset, they're great at adjacent thinking. So adjacent thinking and it's not 3000 it's it's 1500 times 1500 oh wow so, <laughs> so I, you know if, if they were all active that'd be fantastic so i'm not <laughs> i'm not making that claim but you know but in in theory that's what it is it's 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 less than that and we have some that are very active and and very engaged with us on a regular basis and some that are a bit more dormant you know and and so, so okay this this makes sense and in terms of economic model, how does that incentive structure work? So if you're your associates, it makes sense. Obviously, they'll be FTEs and they're part of the family full time. Yep. And then you, you, does it follow a similar model to the likes of GLG or AlphaSite, where in essence, an ex, it's an expert network? Is it, is it a similar model by the hour and you spend time with them and interview and then try to no. consult insight into a document? No, it's so it's I think it's quite hybrid. Um, so remember, this network started in the 80s and there are still some people who, who were with us who were there in the 80s, but it's a very dynamic environment. So we are we are gaining and losing people out of that network all the time. It's quite dynamic. But um, but the way they get paid is in our business model, we charge a fee for service, but we have a modest success fee. And when a deal is done, and not before a deal is done, then we get a success fee and we share that with the one, usually, person who brought us that initial contact. So you can imagine there are 1,500 people out there, a good proportion of them have never earned anything from us at all. So why do they do it? I, I have asked myself that a couple of, got that question a couple of times. I think it's the type of people they are you know, they want to be engaged. That's that. They're the people we want to work with. The people who want to be engaged, who want to be looking for new things, who want to be talking to to spectacular emerging and developed companies around the world, and helping them to to grow even further. So, so, so we will 
compensate a small number of them when they're successful. But I also think that they, a lot of them will have their own deals. So, you know, they'll be bringing us companies that maybe they've already struck a deal with. That's nothing to do with me. That's not part of my my business model. That's their business model. Um, and they may be getting, getting a, a, you know, a, a deal off that side. So I think in any tech transfer, uh, tech scouting, innovation environment, it has to be dynamic. And you have to think of both the commercial and the technical aspects and they are intertwined so deeply but you have to be open to various models to make it work you have to be flexible you know you it's definitely not a one model fits all process mm. yeah, it's interesting when you thank you for that john that, that's why I mean, we could talk about this model for hours because I, I find this space fascinating because obviously our world here at PatSnap is purely from the software sure. standpoint so we're we're like a partner to, in essence, that model you described, where we're we're an online search platform and hopefully just complementary. Yeah, we, we've used well, you know, we we obviously use use you a lot, Ray, and uh, and we hope that continues. And and there's big big investment, hasn't there, in in Patsnet recently? Yeah, exactly. So we're 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 playing in that part of uh, the ecosystem. But one area which is interesting, which, which when you described it, I just thought of friction. Mm -hmm and a challenge with transparency, but I understand why it has to be that way, but hopefully we'll change in the future. So you mentioned this whole piece, when you initially have a client, they're under NDA, um, the supply side don't know who they are. Obviously you guys in a thoughtful and very clear way try to arbitrage that communication. But is it fair to say therein lies some of the challenge because there isn't a framework where companies at scale can be open and say, yeah, it's company X, we're huge in the chocolate manufacturing space. Of course, you know who we are. This is what we're doing within, say, the nutraceutical space within one skew of our number one selling dark chocolate. Mm -hmm. I think technologies like blockchain, federated data rooms, cryptographic truth, do you think we're now probably potentially entering an, entering an era where both sides can be more open off the bat than fast track and scale that communication, thus make it more efficient. Because that, that model you described, I understand why it has to be that way, completely do. Sure. But it seems like it's stuck in the mud. Like we've got technology now, which can through cryptography and blockchains enable a machine of truth and timestamping. So do you, I mean, I know I'm talking slightly blue sky here, but what we're seeing in the market, we're actually kind of here, really, maybe yep. in terms of te technological wise. And then all these use cases around NFTs and a whole bunch of things within patents. So, do you think that's a potential future, which is an actual enabler for this space and will help you scale and and, and evolve your model? Maybe. Um, I, you know, I mean, certainly some companies are are open about the things they're looking for. Um, but you know they're not open about the things that are sensitive that they're looking for. If they have a, a manufacturing problem or a sustainability issue or a legislation that's changed and they need to find a solution quickly, they're not going to be open about that. That's where they come to us and we act as a as, as that confidential shield that protects their their stakeholder value. But but companies are still going out and saying, you know, we're we're looking for. <laughs> 
we're looking for biodegradable resins. We're looking for biodegradable um, brighteners. You know, lots of companies are actually being quite public about that because the fact that they're looking is reflects well on them and the fact that they're actually being you know being seen to be out there looking is reflecting well on them i i, I don't I, I think they go hand in hand as far as the technology aspect that you're talking about and all that technology that you mentioned is good and works etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know and it will it will find a place you know we so there's there's lots of ai that's coming into the tech scouting world um at the end of the day you need a human being to make an assessment and make a judgment and until we're replaced then there will always be a place for that human being to to make that decision so i think that the technology will come and help and anything that helps make the connections and th- and that's the most important thing that the 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 smart considered tech savvy commercial savvy connections anything that helps to do that will help to scale the business you know the the business um but i do think that at the end of the day it it, it's a very personal very people-centric business and and looking at more from an industry level what would you say the top four or five verticals are where i know we're all on that journey and they all need to improve but do this well or are more fertile for it or are the most easy to work with because because culturally and just by design, they're set up to work well with Sal and yeah. it's a lot more fluid. What would you say the top four markets are in, in your professional opinion from the observation over the years? So my problem is that the top four this quarter will be different to the next to the top four next quarter because it changes. It really does change. And and you know, it, it's more dependent on the people who are engaged you and get we are engaged with who who is the champion within the business and what's their technical and political clout within the business that's more important than which sector so food and bev is very innovative um and uh, you know and that and that that's being driven by outside forces you know the the plant-based opportunities legislation um the sustainability is affecting absolutely everything i mean so if i go back seven or eight years we would have an occasional search that somebody would sort of say oh and it has to be sustainable oh okay yeah great fine fine now we i would say that all of our searches have a sustainability element to it that is really serious and not all but probably 50 percent of them are sustainability focused you know so we're, we are looking for for bio-based products we are looking for um for, for low carbon products we're looking to reduce logistics we're looking we're looking for all those elements that are that are that are going to support support the sustainability industry so so that's one it's not even it's not a vertical is it but it's a sort of issue across i guess another one in the same way as as sustainability is digitization digitization so i so i i won't dis- disclose who the company is but 5 years ago maybe slightly less i went to a large company and the innovation director me said john we need to go digital we need to do something on the digital side i said great what do you mean by that and the bemused look came back and the person said, "I don't know really, but I've got to go. I've got to go digital." 
Uh, that's so loose <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and and that's probably as loose you'll, as you'll get but that was because nobody really understood the space at that time it, it's now moved on quite considerably and we're finding digital recognition we're finding digital engagement we're finding it in the cosmetic sector in the beauty sector in the fmcg the device sector medical so digitization is is a theme that's going across all sectors and that's a really really interesting theme so i think it's hard for me to give you sectors, but I think those themes are probably more worthwhile. Mm, that's interesting. So you're seeing each quarter an eclectic mix of industries, and, and so when you're working at the at the people level, be it scouting trends, scouting tech, are you working with an individual? Is it a single team? Is it large multiple groups? Within our company or within the client? Yeah, within, within the client. Is it an individual sponsor or is it multiple teams, a large team? What, what does it look like internally? So that, that really depends on the client. So some, so here's an, I'll give you some examples. We're working with a large um, lubricants business based out of the US and they are looking for bio-based lubricants and greases. Um, they're the CEO of that business. Um, we did some work for five or ten years ago a good a good period ago um he's a new ceo into that business in the states and he's come back to us and he is driving cultural change in that business and using innovation as a as a as a handle to crank that that machine so he is left right and center all over the tech scouting that we're doing for him and, and using it to illustrate to his um colleagues what's available, what they can do, what the next step might be. So, so he's very, very focused. If I take another company that we're working for, um, large multinational, they've developed their own team of open, their own, own open innovation team within the business. That's sort of come out from, from um, new product development teams that were previously in the business, that they've taken the most imaginative characters out of those and put them into an open innovation team. So they are now trying to get the challenges from the wider business, articulate those challenges, do some searching for themselves, but they also know that by using us, their confidentiality is, is protected. And, you know, we, we get... <laughs> It, when we talk to people, we have a way of asking questions where people will give us a lot more information, may I dare say, without an NDA than than maybe they should. So we find out more information than they do. Companies are, 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 are much more open to a discussion about a technology that they are really, really keen about. But if it's a big corporate that's talking to them, they tend to they tend to be a bit quieter. So so we're still working for that 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 client, but they have a sort of intermediary. Um, open innovation team who's who is gathering the requirements from the from the larger corporate that's great in some respects pros and cons to that so the the, the good thing is that they understand open innovation they understand understand scouting they are there pulling those problems from the wider group which is you know as i said that's one of the hardest things to do i guess the the, the downside is that when they brief us we're not being briefed by the problem owner we're being briefed by somebody in the middle so some of the some of the passion some of the problem some of the the subtleties get missed a little bit and that we have to fight our way through that 
the obvious ways to try and get the you know the the, the subject matter expert, the, the tech expert from the corporate into into the, the conversation into the room, and and, and we do that. Um, so so it, it's very different. You know, some of them are are individual champions, and some of them are teams. It's interesting. And when you mentioned the SME is sometimes backstage, is it by design or are they quite introverted? So they tend to have the open innovation manager be front of house to translate. Yeah. Requirement. You know that's the stereotype, isn't it? But I don't, I don't, I don't hold with it to be honest. You know, I can think of the SMEs that I could, I talk to across all sectors, and I think. You know, I think the, major, the the word that comes out wrong is passion. You know, they 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 are the expert, and they may be a little bit blinkered, but that's where we come in. You know, we can we can help them to take those blinkers off and see things that they wouldn't normally entertain, and the the good ones of those will will embrace that and will want to learn. You know, they're they're subject matter experts because they want to learn. You know, they want to be knowledgeable. So if we can bring interesting things into them, that's how we get them engaged. So you know, the the back room nerdy person i think is a is a thing of the past that 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 stereotype's long gone and what one point i forgot to cover off when you mentioned that process of end-to-end -end and hopefully you get a two-pager in front of your client for them to kind of decide a go or no go or, or let's yep. dig in together how long is that process typically so I, I said that what we do is we take two or three weeks to start that process coming in um so we would normally have that first two pager on the client's desk in three to four weeks. Now, it might take a little longer, but equally, it could we could have something that we've got already in our in our knowledge base that that we can put on the desk within a couple of days. But usually, two to three weeks is is the first one, and then we would expect and and this this again is dependent on the challenge. We'd expect to be placing another one every week. So. You know, in three months, you're going to get 10 really well-filtered potential opportunities, stroke solutions, depending on what you're looking for. And once you get that flow going where you're kind of building out that velocity and where it seems like the first two-pager takes that ramp time and then you've got things running in parallel so you get further speed of execution, what's the percentage which leads to some form of conversion in terms of say you have presented 10 over a three, four month period that leads to uh, a client saying, well, let's pull the trigger. You found something meaningful. Let's do something. What does that typically look like in, in your world? So so one of the downsides of my business is I'm out of control of the final decision. That's always been my my, 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 my sleepless night problem. You know, How do I get the, the corporates to make a decision on this one? Um, and I can't influence that. And if you've got any any ideas, then hey, I'd love to hear them. So we have a we have a, a closer KPI. So we have a KPI that says of of the of the of the the flood of opportunities that we send, we would expect our client to want to see, as in physically meet teams meet whatever the world means nowadays, a third of them. So one in one in three are significantly of interest after we've done some further questioning that's been based on the client's requirements for the client to say, yeah, yeah, I think we should meet those guys. And then we set up a CDA. So, so, so a third of the things that we present, and remember, we only present one tenth of the things that we probably see, go get the opportunity to get to the next stage. 
don't ask me what the next stage is because it you know some some years it can be fantastic and some years it can be really really dry yeah that makes sense and 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 also on a broad level the challenges around scouting so i've and i'm guessing we've all done it consumed a lot of that survey data from the likes of bcg mckinsey again i mentioned innovation leader i really enjoy their work and i think mm -hmm. innovation leader in specific done a piece in 2018 on 2019 where they talked around uh some of the blockers, not blockers, more challenges. And yeah. number one was connectivity to the business. Number two, identifying what area to track or scout. And number three, being time. Would you say that's a fair top three, or do you see something more nuanced in the market? So that those are those are problems that the corporate team is is looking for, uh, is experiencing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. To, to get scouting going yeah. and get the ball rolling. Um. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. You know, I think that a lot of our clients are using us to explore future areas that they don't have the time or resource or expertise to explore themselves. And, and I think that's a really good use of our time. So, you know, the clients have focused on quarterly figures. But they might be saying, you know, we should be doing this in green, or we should be making, we, we should be putting this into an active, or you know, we we should be making an excipient out of this. But but they don't. It's an idea, so they can come to us, and we will probably do a landscape first. Who who else is doing an excipient in this area, you know? And what are the benefits, and what are the cost benefits in that in that in that landscape where it's operating? Are they big companies, small companies? Are there any acquisition opportunities in that area? So start with the landscape, and then pick it. The client can go, okay, yeah, that looks quite interesting, or no, no, we'll we'll steer clear of that. On the interesting ones, they can then focus down and say, great, now can you go and find us some companies that we can partner with in that in that sector? Then we start doing the, you know, the what we would call the normal scouting, where we're reaching out and, and engaging with people. So so I think that's that's a good use. Um, resource, you mentioned, yeah, massive problem for I I I don't think I've ever met somebody with the title tech scout in any corporate who's who is 100 percent on tech scouting you know oh, they are... just pause so we see that job title in abundance yeah but are you saying that that's their job title maybe on linkedin or on their business card or their digital business card now in this world but if you dig in it might be 40 percent of their job and they're actually working on other activities as well and other kpis yeah yeah, they're being pulled. They are often being pulled pillar and post. They tend to get that role because they engage, you know, because they have that 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 mind and that personality to be able to engage and make some early assessments. Um, but those qualities are in demand, so they tend to have other responsibilities. So, so I, I think to use a, a, an external body like ourselves and the others. You know, they, the clients know they're getting 100% of that time focused on that problem, that potential opportunity, that landscape. They, they know that, that, that they're going to get a result within a certain period of time. And I think that's probably one thing. Um, so resources is, is definitely one. Um, connectivity. What, 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 explain to me what was in the report about connectivity. Yeah, that, that was number one. So it seems like activity yeah. to the wider organization. So imagine us two are the trailblazers who have got sponsorship to spend, say, 
50% of our time on tech scouting, just getting that connective tissue to the rest of the organization. And I'm guessing if it's a global company with say 20,000 employees, just yeah. kind of winning hearts and minds and getting people listening and yeah. distracting from them, their day job, I'm guessing. That's what and that came out as number one. That was 58% in the survey. I can, I can understand that. I mean, that's, that's the, um, you know, that's the political job, isn't it? And, and it's really difficult and you, you know, you, you need somebody really senior and somebody who's been in the business for a long time, who have, who therefore has built those relationships that they can influence people and bring them around to their way of thinking. Um, so yeah, that, that is important, but I think connectivity works the other way as well, outside of the organization, you know, you, there's no good being a technology scout if you talk to six people outside of outside of your your company you know you have to be incredibly well connected and i think that's quite difficult for let's be generous and say the two or three people in the business who've got tech scout in their in their title who are not 100 percent tech scouts that's really quite that that's a real challenge uh, and and sorry and on a on it so, sorry john and so this is interesting. I'm I'm quite surprised to learn this today mm -hmm. that their job isn't full time tech scouting because it's something which I didn't think about before. Nor do they mention it when you engage them. You don't realise that wow, this is probably forty percent of your day job. Is that is that changing in the marketplace where you actually are seeing? Yep, I do this full time, John. This is my. I think it's. I don't know is, is the honest answer. I don't know whether it's changing, but I think what you'll also find is that, you know, the person who's doing the tech scouting then finds something that's really interesting and then has to do the internal selling and the business case preparation and the political sounding and the, and that, that means that they're not tech scouting anymore. So, so, you know, it, it's a multidisciplinary multi role that, 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 that that person is is trying to um, to deploy within a large organisation, and it's a challenge. I honestly think, my opinion, that it's harder to do tech scouting in a large organisation than it is to do in a in a company like ours. Yeah, it, while you were talking, I just oh, I love doing this. Um, John running a search on LinkedIn by job title. <laughs> Go on. I just filtered US and I just put technology scout technology scouting. And the nomenclature around the job title is nuanced. It's senior program manager, innovation, senior product manager, stroke innovation. So I, I get what you mean. It, it, it's not crystal clear. It seems quasi hybrid, Yeah. Part, partly the job. And actually, if you look at the job description, some of it does read very well. We're like, wow, this is probably a dream customer for sale or, or a patch that. Sure. But, but I think, but I think also you have to you have to think where I'm coming from. I'm coming from, you know, we are 100 percent tech scouts. So so I, I'm I'm my view is slightly biased, isn't it? Obviously. <laughs> um, and, and I think, as I said, I think the tech scouts in the large corporates have a really, really tough job, really tough job because they they tend not to be the most senior people and you need to have political technical credibility to be able to influence the wider organization and that's hard you know yeah it's it, it seems like i mean it's always the case people are the problem 
in many cases. And the solution, <laughs> says Cornelly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I think so. I, so having having been in this business for a long time, that transition between the smaller companies and the owner occupied the owner managed businesses through to the large corporates, you know that that transition took time to go through. And then once the large corporates had decided this is interesting, then there was a, a period of so who does this? You know how how do we how do we do it? And who has responsibility of it? And the big breakthrough for us was when the term innovation director started, because innovation director is hopefully a shortcut for influencer stroke decision maker not always but the, but the innovation director has responsibility for innovation of course that means different things to different people as well but but you know that that they tend to be our target people within organizations because they hopefully are senior enough and hopefully have enough political technical credibility to to influence and to and to make change and one thing that we're observing, John, I'd love to get your insight on this as well. We are seeing a, a decent trend where this is getting slightly more de democratized, meaning you might have head of R&D saying, actually, for my specific tech domain within this materials project, I actually have three people participating or maybe even owning tech scouting. So it lives within R&D. Or, for example, corporate venture, oh, we're the, we're the guys and girls signing checks, deploying capital in emerging startups, taking equity positions in companies which we maybe buy in the future. So actually, we own or partly own tech scouting, so trend scouting. So do you guys see that as well, where it just sits outside classic innovation, but sits in R&D or corporate venture or strategy? It depends on the it certainly depends on the company. Uh, I mean, they're all really good points. So the corporate venturing side is a whole different ball game, because you you do have people in there who who are who are challenged to engage with with startups. And you know, once you talk about the startup environment, there's nothing more dynamic. You know, a, a company that you see on Wednesday that looks fantastic could be gone on Monday. Um, and, and another one that's come that started over the weekend is actually better. So it's that's an incredibly dynamic environment. Um, the corporate venturing side, I think, is, is a good area for us. We, we've done quite a bit of work, particularly on the landscaping side, on the corporate venturing um, side of corporates, mainly because they tend to be smaller teams and therefore need extra resource. And, you know, experienced resources is difficult to come by. So we've, we've been quite busy in that area the r&d one's a difficult one isn't it because <laughs> there's a dichotomy i think in r&d and innovation or open innovation and it, you know it's as it's as old as the hills not invented here yeah my yeah. the r&d director he or she is supposed to develop the next range of products you know and solve the next group of problems that's their job that's their reason to be and their team is focused on that so when the marketing director comes in and says oh i've been told about this company in in australia who who have the solution there's a temptation for the for the r&d director to, to not listen so i'm probably being a bit controversial but i think that the the R&D has a has an absolute pivotal role, but I don't think it's an innovation role. And I haven't heard many R&D directors taking responsibility for innovation. 
innovation directors, marketing directors, new product development directors, um, corporate venturing um, teams. R&D need to be involved, but I, I, I think they're more focused or the, if I was running the business, they'd be more focused on um, sort of the, 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 the short to medium term um, uh, objectives. And, and, what, and one final point more on the buy side to the bigger folks. From what you shared today, this is interesting, and please correct me if I'm going down the wrong route, but it, you mentioned most clients do want to play it typically safe, and I completely understand. If they're, if they're public, it's a quarterly target. Even if they're large and private, it's still a quarterly target, and that type of environment, that's the reality of the operating rhythm for most of these companies, to be fair, which I understand, right down from the CEO and the board to the kind of people executing day-to-day. So it sounds like, yes, they're working on incremental innovation problems majority of the time, maybe some adjacent work, but they will come to an organization like Sal because that incremental innovation challenge will probably come from an adjacent marketplace. Possibly. A transformational approach, even though the end outcome is an incremental piece of innovation the actual answer is adjacent and potentially transformational in terms of industry on the supply side is that a fair kind of um, that is could that... happen you know that could happen but but it could equally be that it could equally be that what they're looking for is sat on the shelf of a competitor and the competitor is not using it anymore and has got no interest for it, and therefore it might be able, we might be able to pick that up, and buy a li- get a license for that, or have our have our client get a license for it. So is that is that transformational? I'm not sure. Is it for? It's definitely not from another sector. It's from the same sector. It's from a competitive client. That that, that you know, I, I think it's really difficult to say that. Difficult to pull trends. You know, it's difficult to say what individual corporates are looking for if i had to i would say that they're every there's a there's a constant drive to make incremental improvements that's 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 goes without saying that has to happen and that can be done internally you know the r&d team probably will know the product portfolio and we'll be working on that but it could come from outside you've then got um challenges that are that the corporates are facing that are you know a real technical problem that they've that's been there for ages and they know it's been there and the r&d team have tried to tackle it and not been able to tackle it so that's when it could come from outside and certainly that could come from another sector a solution could come from another sector or an emerging sector you've then got all of those digitization sustainability 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 um, problems challenges that the that the corporates are having to ad- address you know i was having a debate with with a, a a client the other day and we were debating whether sustainability is being driven by legislation and regulation or by the consumer and, and we had different views but but it's being driven you know um and it's being driven hard so every corporate is looking for is now addressing its whole portfolio and its manufacturing practices from a sustainability angle and 
and that you know there's enough there to go on for the next five years so 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 there are different challenges coming from different areas and i think it's i'm not i don't have the brain big enough to say where those where those trends are coming from at the moment Mm. okay well well, it looks like we've really unpacked the the more the buy side spreading some two final areas which we'd love to cover is more the supply side, so the world of tech transfer, SMEs, mid-sized businesses. It's interesting that there's an abundance of capital in the markets right now. So you can be an early stage, innovative materials company, for example. We've got a bunch here at PatSnap doing amazing stuff. You can fundamentally go it alone because capital is basically abundant. It's yep, incredibly sure. cheap. So are you seeing challenges on the supply side where there is maybe a shortage with some of the top tier guys and girls say, listen, we're actually competing. We're actually going to eat their lunch. So we're not really interested in licensing or, or slicing any part of our technology off because we're, we want to own this market and be the disruptive force. So are you seeing any emergence of that or, or that imp- impacting the supply side? Not at all. No, not at all. I mean, it's, it's cyclical, isn't it? The, you know, capital is cheap, then it's expensive, it's abundant, then, then it's not. That That's a cycle that happens, you know, what, every two, three, whatever whatever number of years. Um, I, there, There is no shortage of innovation. You know, there's no shortage of smart ideas that are starting to be commercialized. Whether that happens in a university or in a technical institute there it has its own problems of trying to bring that out whether it happens in a startup that's that originates you know outside of an academic environment or inside that there's enough of those coming through there's an abundance of technology innovation and manufacturing practice coming out of the SME environment globally you know the the, the SME um uh, distribution of companies in Asia and America and Europe are very different. They address different problems and different and have different solutions. So, you know, what might be a really tricky problem in Europe might find we might find a solution for that in in an SME environment in in Japan. So, so there's there's no shortage of of innovation within the SME environment. I think, if I'm being brutally honest, the the innovation um shortfall is in the large corporates and that's that's you know I'm, I'm glad that's the case because whilst those large corporates are looking for innovation you know they, they're trying to deliver it themselves but the better ones are also looking outside for where they can adopt it change it um acquire it adapt it that that's you know that's where that's where i think we'll all will probably always be the situation. They have access to large markets. They have access to capital. There is a, there's an arms race as far as innovation and features and benefits are going on within the corporate world. So they have to keep moving. They have to keep innovating and they have to rely on other people to help them to do that. Brilliant. And one final area, and this one, this one drives me nuts and I'm sure you see it as well in terms of how manual the process is and but we are seeing some interesting innovation on that side which we could probably talk about another day it's the execution of the license phase yeah so if you look at the way it's done at the moment a lot of it is obviously involves a lot of human capital a lot of lawyers a lot of that work ends up being 
ends up being a simple license agreement. So both sides leaving leaving chips on the table, no uniqueness in model, business model where you can slice and dice things, maybe pay as you use, those types of more smart models where it's a it's just better for both parties. So are you seeing any potential innovation on the licensing side where things are done via technology, not this old fashioned way of human to human with a bunch of lawyers in the middle <laughs> you always end up coming to a really boring flat simple licensing agreement i've got i've got like this i've got this vision of yeah. um of, of going into a lawyer's office and seeing it stacked with paper you know and seeing yeah. the lawyer peeping over the top of two very large piles of paper and in and out and one's much larger than the other usually um i think it's dickensian and I don't think it's changing. <laughs> uh, I, I would have to say that from from our perspective, because we work with the tend to work with the very large corporates, they have their own legal department, so we don't really get involved with the licensing detail. I'm sort of pleased about that, to be honest, because as as you've just outlined, it's it's a bottleneck, and you can have the best technology, the best deal, the best people, and it still falls over because of the licensing negotiation. So so. We do. I mean, my background was licensing. So, you know, in, in my early days, I was licensing technologies out to mom and pop shops in the States and and plating uh, facilities in Japan and in, in Asia. And it was a really hard job then, even when it was one person to one person. You know, I was talking to the owner of the mom and pop shop in, in Phoenix and sat over a table and it still takes a long time. I don't see that. I don't see that becoming quicker. In my personal experience, I'm I'm sat here with my two fingers crossed that it will be, and that maybe it's happening in the background, and then I'm just not privy to it because it's not an area that I get involved with. But you know, it's ripe for innovation, isn't it? Yeah, because it, it seems insane because you have your team do all this fantastic work at Sal in terms of sourcing really meaningful opportunities for the client the client spending time and money on digging into this and executing. It's shocking how much value could actually be lost in the execution phase of the license because it's maybe done more in a dynamic way or a thoughtful way where both sides are leaving chips on the table. Is that, yeah. is that quite common in the marketplace? Right? So, so I, th I, I, as I said, I'm not, I, I'm not involved in the in the practicalities of those deals very much, but obviously I had influence because I want to see a, a deal done. Um, I would say that the majority of corporates now don't want to license, they want to acquire. So, you know, a license would be considered, but most of them want to acquire. Now, if you're talking about a startup or an SME, that, that's, that's it's potential, it's possible. Um, you often get a, maybe a joint venture with a license involved that's sort of a, an intermediate mating period where, where, where both parties come together and work together under a, under a, a different shell. But uh, generally, the corporates are, are, are acquisitional. That means it means that they don't, you know, you get into issues of warranties and guarantees and, and things like that when you get involved with licenses. I think most corporates just like to acquire and then their legal department can can um, uh, can bring that technology, you know, into their legal requirements. Brilliant. Well, I mean, we could probably talk for hours, John. Today's been a really interesting conversation. 
learning about your world and and all the different perspectives so hopefully we can get you back for part two uh yeah but really enjoyed the exchange and uh, you have an uh, awesome weekend ray it's been a pleasure and uh, i've really enjoyed the time speaking to you and um yeah uh, I, I hope you have a similar a similar sunny weekend wonderful excellent and there you have it, everyone, for today's interview with John. I want to thank John so much for taking time out of his schedule and sharing his wisdom and insight with us today. Be sure you follow John on LinkedIn. His link is in our bio description area. You can easily access that. And thank you for listening. If you listen to the entire episode, we want to do something for you. For being a podcast listener, you can go ahead and download the Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint for free. Now, in this white paper, we explore what Connected Innovation Intelligence is and how the world's top disruptors are using it to grow, compete, and win in a hyper-competitive world. Now, to grab a free copy of this blueprint, the Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint, all you need to do is go to the link in the description of this podcast you'll find it below wherever you're listening to it apple Podcasts or spotify click that link it's going to take you to a page to download it directly there where you're going to learn to explore new markets and predict trends uncover competitive strategy and validate your ideas before you even start so to grab your free copy of the connected innovation intelligence blueprint today go ahead to the description of this podcast wherever you're listening apple spotify stitcher you're going to find the link below click that and download your free copy today thank you all so much for listening to today's episode be sure you hit that subscribe button share this out with one person who you feel like would truly benefit from listening to today's episode with john we'll be back soon with another episode until then, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.